Do you believe there's life on other planets? Do you believe there could be civilizations out there with the capability and technology to travel faster than the speed of light? Do you believe in UFOs? Recently, my family and I went on a little day trip to Pasadena, just a couple cities east of LA. At one point, my son pointed up and asked if those things in the sky were stars. It was two in the afternoon, not a cloud in the sky. My partner looked up and said, oh, wow, what are those? At first, I didn't see what they were looking at, but then they came into focus. 24 shiny objects were moving west in a loose formation. We watched for more than 15 minutes as they maintained basically the same speed, occasionally changing positions in the rough formation, sort of floating with purpose. Eventually, a 25th object followed at a distance. This one looked a little bigger and was maybe a different color. I tried to take video and only managed to get a grainy screenshot. We'll put it on our Instagram. They were too high up to be balloons, and they were all moving at about the same speed. They seemed to reflect the sun. I can tell you unequivocally they were not birds. They had no wings. They were orbs. What were they? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer, an actor, and a podcaster who doesn't really believe in the boogeyman, but leaves a light on just in case. This week, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's, it's, what the hell is that? In the spring of 2020, the Department of Defense officially released documents about UFO sightings, including three videos involving unidentified aircraft and naval pilots and officers. One was from November 2004, and two were from January 2015. All three videos had been unofficially released, a.k.a. leaked, in 2007 and 2017, respectively. The videos all seem to show aircraft that were not and still have not been linked to any known organization or people. The 2004 video was from the USS Nimitz. You may have heard of this encounter being referred to as the Nimitz Encounters or Tic Tac UFO. In November of that year, Commander David Fravor and Lieutenant Jim Slate were doing routine training in FA-815 Super Hornets. Fancy Top Gun planes, a hundred miles out into the Pacific, when Petty Officer Third Class Gary Voorhees from the USS Princeton radioed asking them to investigate an unidentified aircraft in the area. Voorhees and the crew of the Princeton had been tracking several, quote, mysterious aircraft for two weeks. They had witnessed what appeared to be up to nine aircraft in extremely tight formation, performing extraordinary maneuvers not seen in conventional aircraft. Indeed, not possible in conventional aircraft. On this day, the aircraft being monitored appeared suddenly at 80,000 feet, dropped quickly toward the ocean, stopped at 20,000 feet, and hovered, then eventually fell off radar or ascended back up. Over radio, Voorhees guided Fravor and Slate to the location, telling them when their location was close to the object, which had reappeared on the radar. 
At first, the pilots couldn't see anything around them. It was as if the aircraft they were looking for had vanished. Back on the Princeton, Voorhees couldn't tell which dots on his radar were the pilots and which were the things the pilots were investigating. That's how close the pilots were to whatever Voorhees was tracking. But it just wasn't where it was supposed to be, according to the radar. Fravor then looked down below. He saw something that looked like an aircraft. It was whitish, 40 feet long, and oval. It had no plumes, wings, or rotors. It was around 50 feet above the ocean, and it was, as he said, quote, jumping around erratically, staying over a wave disturbance, but not moving in any specific direction. Fravor said the wave disturbance looked like frothy waves and foam, as if the water was boiling. Fravor started a slow, circular descent to get a closer look, but as he got closer, the object ascended toward him. So Fravor stopped to the flight equivalent of a tiptoe and just headed straight for the thing. But he didn't make it. The object accelerated away like nothing he'd ever seen, he said. Next, Fravor and Slate were told by the Princeton to head to a rendezvous point around 60 miles away. According to Commander Fravor in an interview he gave to the New York Times in 2017, as they headed there, Voorhees radioed and said the object had shown up at the rendezvous point. The two pilots were still at least 40 miles away. In less than a minute, this unknown aircraft had made it to the rendezvous point, a rendezvous point it didn't know about. For reference, an F-18 can go 1,190 miles. So this thing was even faster. By the time the two pilots got there, it was gone. On the day of this incident, according to an article in Popular Mechanics, November 2019, two unknown individuals showed up on both the Nimitz and the Princeton, demanding the hard drives along with any log of the events and instructed Voorhees to reload the recorders for the ship's Combat Engagement Center, CEC, because it had also been wiped clean, along with the optical drives with all the radio communications. In my reading of this incident, Voorhees was unaware that the system had been wiped clean. I don't know when or how it would have happened, but somehow these shadowy dudes knew about it before he did. Voorhees claims the men had him erase everything, including blank tapes, a procedure he said he'd only ever had to do after an aircraft crash during one of his combat deployments. As far as we know, none of the men involved in the encounter, Fravor, Slate, Voorhees, or any of the ship's officers, were interviewed. There was no follow-up aside from the people from the Matrix showing up and being like, Mr. Anderson, nothing you saw here today was real. How is that impression? A few things strike me as odd about this story. I mean, aside from the inexplicable science behind what these guys claim to have seen. First, there seems to be a real problem with chain of command here. It seems like it's perfectly normal for naval pilots to take direction from random naval cruisers, which seems, I don't know, haphazard? 
Fravor and Slate's aircraft carrier was the Nimitz, but when the Princeton came a-radioing along, they jumped right to it. If officers from one vessel can take orders from a different vessel, how are they supposed to know who they're talking to? I'm sure the Navy has private communication channels, but what if the USS Princeton had been taken over by, like, spies from Canada? What if the person asking Fravor and Slate to investigate a nearby UFO was leading them into a trap? That just seems like bizarre policy for an organization whose primary objective is protecting the homeland. Then again, what do I know? Second, okay, they take orders from a different officer on a different ship, fine. I can buy that maybe they were the only two pilots in the air when Gary Voorhees picked up a strange phenomenon on his radar and it needed to be checked out. Maybe Fravor and Slate were the only ones available to check it out, fine. I can be on board with that strange chain of command. But then he tells them to go to a rendezvous point? To what, gossip about that strange shit that just happened? Frankly, that seems odd. It smells too much like, hey kid, I lost my puppy. Can you get in my car and help me find him? Like what? They did their job. They checked out the weird anomaly. Shouldn't that have been the end of it? Why did they need to go to a second location? Never go to a second location. Have we learned nothing from Oprah? And I'm sorry, the UFO knew where the rendezvous point was? Does that worry anyone else? Okay, next. If the USS Princeton had been tracking a mysterious aircraft or aircrafts for two weeks, shouldn't the nearest naval bases at least have known about it? Why didn't they tell the Nimitz about it earlier? The ship was clearly in the neighborhood. By neighborhood, I mean the Pacific Ocean. Why did they wait for two of the Nimitz crew to be up there and not just investigate on its own? That's like someone on Neighborhood Watch being like, oh yeah, I've seen a stranger snooping around our backyards for the past two weeks. The rest of the Neighborhood Watch is like, um, did you do anything? And he's like, I did eventually tell those other two strangers who happened to be passing by. Did the entire crew of the USS Princeton just, like, forget, not care, was it not important? And if strange, impossible aircraft just off our shores isn't cause for concern, what is? And then there's the literal men in black who showed up and were like, we'll take that, thank you. They appeared on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean and no one knows how they got on or off? God bless or God fear the hierarchy of the Navy. My friends will tell me if they don't shit for three days, but news of strangers appearing mysteriously on ships in the middle of the ocean takes years to be leaked? Anyway, after the Matrix people whisked the information away and the officers directly involved with the encounters, it bears repeating, weren't even asked about it. The Department of Defense waited 15 years to officially release the footage, by which point they had already been leaked. They claimed the reason they made the videos public was to clear up any misconceptions about whether or not the leaked footage was real and to confirm that what was out there was, in fact, all the footage. Nothing had been left out. Because, as we all know, things can't be added or erased to video. The DOD's official statement on the aircraft in the footage is that it remains 
unidentified. Nothing to see here, folks. Now, let's talk about the other two videos that were made public during the same governmental information drop. They're both from 2015 and appear to show multiple unidentified aircraft off the coast of Virginia. In one video, one of the naval pilots first thinks they might be drones, but then he realizes the objects are moving at 120 knots, which is nearly 140 miles per hour, against the wind. Also, they were rotating. Most commercial drones average about 40 or 50 miles per hour tops. The fastest drone speed recorded was just under 180 miles per hour. That was a custom home-built drone used in a race. Look, I'm no statistician, but the likelihood that these guys witnessed a fleet of custom-built drones that had 140 mile per hour speed and unprecedented range is slim to none. There's a whole fleet of them, look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Well, if there's a good thing, it's rotating. According to the article about this event in Popular Mechanics, Nick Cook, author of The Hunt for Zero Point, Inside the Classified World of Anti-Gravity Technology, said, I searched for 10 years. I never found any compelling evidence that the type of technology exists. That doesn't mean it couldn't still exist. I just never found any smoking gun for it. So, unlikely a drone. Here's what I'm wondering. Are drones going to be everywhere someday soon? Are skies just littered with plastic junk filming our every move? Probably. That's sad. And part of what's sad about it is it's totally going to complicate our ongoing cultural obsession with UFOs. Like, forget being able to see the stars. No one's going to think, what the fuck is that? Looking up in the sky if the sky becomes a superhighway of plastic crap. And that makes me a little sad because we've had UFO peepers, trademark pending, for decades. Let me take you back. Our modern-day love affair with UFOs began not in the sky, but on the ground, when an unknown craft seemingly crashed into the desert near Roswell, New Mexico. First, a small confession. Before doing the research for this episode, I didn't really know what happened at Roswell. Roswell is just shorthand for weird alien shit, like Area 51. Are they the same thing? I literally don't know. In the late 1940s, there was a UFO craze happening in American pop culture. Weird that our fascination with UFOs and where they might be coming from and who might be in them coincided with the birth of the nuclear bomb. Maybe it was just a coincidence? I doubt it. On June 14, 1947, about 80 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico, a rancher named W.W. Mac Brazel and his son Vernon were driving across their ranch land when they encountered something they'd never seen before. It was, in Brazel's words, A large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tin foil, and rather tough paper and sticks. The metallic-looking lightweight fabric was shredded and scattered across the gravel and sagebrush of the New Mexico desert. 
Razel didn't know what to do with any of it or how it all landed on his property. So on July 4th, he collected all the mysterious wreckage he could find. On July 7th, he drove it all to Roswell, delivering the goods to Sheriff George Wilcox. Now, right off the bat, I have notes. Why did Brazel wait three weeks to collect the weird shit scattered on his ranch? Like, if you find something in your backyard that shouldn't be there, are you really going to leave it there for three weeks? Then again, why would Brazel lie about when he found this mysterious debris? Regardless, Sheriff Wilcox then brought the pieces of unknown stuff to a colonel in the army. Does that seem normal to you? I can't be the only one who's immediately like, the army? That's the next logical step? Like, not the weather service or, I don't know, a local balloon supplier? Obviously, I'm not the only one who's suspicious of this because the legend of Roswell has become as American as apple pie, baseball, and our right to own a high-capacity firearm. The next day, the Roswell Daily Record ran a story about the discovery with the headline, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. Which, first of all, it somehow morphed from a rancher finding weird debris to the Roswell Army Airfield capturing a UFO. Now, to be fair, this headline was probably the 1947 version of clickbait. The military sent out a press release after rumors began to spread about what Brazel found on his ranch, probably in an effort to get ahead of it. Unfortunately, that press release used the term flying disc, and it claimed it had landed in Brazel's field. Perhaps unknown debris might have been a better choice of words? How could they have known that quickly that the debris was, in fact, a flying disc or that it landed rather than crashed is a mystery. Look, I'm not a UFO pilot, but it seems to me that if an aircraft is in pieces scattered over a field, it didn't land. Also, they didn't capture it so much as they stumbled across it and collected it. The next day, the military issued another press release that was basically like, uh, just kidding, huh, it was a weather balloon, our bad. There was no alien. Flash of light you saw in the sky was not a UFO. Swamp gas from a weather balloon was trapped in a thermal pocket and refracted the light from Venus. The Corsicana Daily Sun's headline read, Disc craze continues. Army discounts New Mexico find as weather gear. For the record, they spelled craze with a K, and discounts was spelled D-I-S-K dash O-U-N-T-S. Because nothing says serious journalism more than word puns. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, I'm sorry, the military can't tell the difference between a flying saucer and a balloon? That doesn't give me the highest confidence in our military. About a half a century later in the 90s, the military re-clarified their clarification, saying that the debris was actually from a U.S. spy device that was being tested in the area. The new claim was that the U.S. military was testing a high-altitude balloon with microphones attached to pick up sound waves in the atmosphere that could tell them whether Russia was testing atomic bombs. The article in the New York Times called that something nearly as strange as an alien spaceship. 
Really, New York Times? A balloon with a microphone on it is nearly as strange as aliens? Really? Now, why the military would think covering up a secret spy program by claiming it was a UFO was a good idea? Who knows? And why they would then think covering up a UFO story covering up a spy program by claiming it was a weather balloon would put the issue to bed? Look, far be it for me to tell the military how to do their job. Although, technically, I am their employers. Anyway. The truth may be less cool than a conspiracy to cover up a UFO. The truth may be that the U.S. was testing a super-secret spy gadget. It crashed, and the folks who came upon it didn't even know about the super-secret spy program or the gadgets it was testing. It could be that the officer who Brazel gave the debris to honestly had no idea what it was and didn't think twice about calling it a flying disc. And then when it was blasted in the papers that a UFO had crashed in New Mexico, the people who did know what was going on were like, well, shit, we can't let them know it was a super secret spy gadget, but we can't have them running around thinking it was a UFO. I don't know, tell them it was a weather balloon. But we may never know because apparently the stuff collected from Brazel's ranch in July of 1947 was destroyed. It was destroyed. Now, if it was a super secret spy gadget, is that really what happens to spy gadgets? If they don't work, they just get destroyed? I'm just saying, Tony Stark kept each iteration of Iron Man. Just seems logical. Unless they kept the designs and plans for it and threw away the actual material. If that is the case, it might behoove the U.S. military to release the plans and designs for this atomic detecting balloon. Just to, you know, close the chapter on this. Like here, see? You can clearly see by these designs that this matches the debris in the photos. So, say it with me. What if it was aliens? <laughs> Wait. It might actually have been aliens. All right, so what if the crash at Roswell actually was aliens? In a book published in 2017, retired sheriff's deputy Charles Fogus claims he and Sheriff Jess Slaughter were driving out the way of Brazel's ranch on their way to pick up a prisoner when they came upon the scene of the crashed UFO. Fogus claimed to have seen a saucer on the riverbed that was 100 feet across. He said there were three or 400 soldiers covering the area and that when he and the sheriff got there... They uh, were hauling a big uh, a creature bodies must have been five feet tall. I saw the legs and feet on some of them. They looked like our feet. The skin was a brownish color, uh, like they were in the sun too long. And we seen them haul them, the bodies, out there, out of the canyon up to the trucks, uh, putting them on the tow trucks so, so they could haul them. Again, notes. First of all, I'm five feet three quarters inches. I have not once in my life been referred to as big. Well, that's not entirely true. Once I got an email from a complete stranger, a man, who had seen me on TV and decided it was very important to tell me I had a chubby bottom and bye-bye arms. 
But still, it's not like Deputy Fogus said too fat for Hollywood. He said big creature. And call me crazy, but five feet isn't big. A deer is about five feet. So is a bear or a donkey. Granted, deer, bears, and donkeys don't have human-like feet. Also, you mean to tell me that there were upwards of 400 soldiers at the site, but you and Sheriff Duda just strolled on over to the crash site and just watched them unload creatures? I've seen Men in Black, dude. I know how this shit works. But also, couldn't they have just maybe been some actual brown-skinned people who had been in some sort of terrible accident or something like that? I wouldn't go so far as to say, Deputy Fogus, <laughs> more like Deputy Bogus, am I right? I'm just saying, Deputy Fogus might not have been the most reliable narrator. So, I turned to the infamous Roswell Report, which is the military's official and declassified account of what happened at Roswell, to try to find out what these big brown creatures with their human feet might have been. It turns out the Roswell Report is 232 pages, and it's a PDF, so I can't do a word search. Who has time to read a 232-page report? Like, I love you all, but 232 pages is a lot of pages. But in the cursory scanning of the 7 million pages, what I did glean is that the official military line is that reports of beings or creatures being removed from the crash site were just cases of misremembering. They sort of claim that what people thought were beings might have been crash test dummies. Some of the descriptions might sound like crash test dummies, human-like, bald, wearing one-piece jumpsuits. But there was also a report from a local mortician who claimed to have received a series of phone calls from the Roswell military base asking, what's the best way to handle small bodies? How do you best preserve bodies that have been exposed to the elements? How would that conversation have gone, do you think? Oh, hey, uh, this is the military. Yes, the U.S. military. Uh-huh. Yeah. Listen, uh, just like hypothetically, let's say we found three, I don't know, small bodies. What's the best way to uh, handle them? Also, again, totally hypothetical situation here. But let's say these three small bodies might have been, I don't know, like left outside for a few weeks. Like, what would you suggest then? The story involved an anonymous military nurse who claimed that three alien bodies were being examined at the military base by medical experts. The mortician didn't come forward with this story until the late 80s, however. No one could find the nurse or even verify that she existed. Also, are we to believe that the military called up Bob, the local mortician, for advice on preserving aliens? I mean, okay. In her 2011 book, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base, Annie Jacobson claims an anonymous source came forward reporting that the crash at Roswell was actually the work of the Russians. This theory is wild. It goes like this. After World War II, the Russians worked with German engineers to build spy craft that could evade radar. The Russians worried about the U.S. and their atomic bomb, which, fair, 
if there's one thing to worry about on this planet, the atomic bomb is it. Intentionally sent this spycraft into Roswell, intended as a warning to President Truman that they, the Russians, were capable of creating a UFO hoax that would stir up a frenzy among the general population. Now, these spy crafts were not unpiloted. According to Jacobson's anonymous source, child-sized aviators were aboard the disks. Humans, seemingly about 13 years old, who may have been surgically or biologically altered to give them enlarged heads and eyes. Jacobson quotes her source as saying he was told that the alien lookalikes were the result of experiments conducted by Nazi mad scientist Joseph Mengele. The bodies were recovered from the wreckage, and two of them were alive, but comatose. The source claims to have seen the bodies for themselves in a research facility in Ohio where they were on life support. Okay, kids, I where to even start with this one? First of all, what? Look, I would not put it past any government to conduct horrific experiments on humans. There's ample evidence of our own doing it. And we all know that Joseph Mengele is the ultimate fucking boogeyman. I mean, he was a literal monster. And if you don't know who Joseph Mengele was, consider yourself lucky. But first of all, the Roswell crash happened in 1947. World War II ended in 1945, and sure, plenty of Germans went into hiding in other countries to escape justice. It's conceivable that a couple of German engineers ran off to Russia and then helped them build spycraft and genetically and or surgically alter children to fly said aircraft, but I don't know. That seems like a lot of work to get done and get done right in under two years. And don't forget that according to this theory, the craft meant to land where it did, in Roswell. It was intentional. So either it could navigate itself and the children inside were just passengers sent as decoy alien pilots, or they somehow trained preteens to fly a brand new kind of aircraft in less than two years and convince them to basically kamikaze themselves into the New Mexico desert. So, the incident at Roswell. Errant weather balloon? Crashed super-secret spycraft? Alien invasion? Or pointless Russian government hoax involving mutant, mind-controlled children? It could be that the days of the government really being able to pull the wool over our eyes are gone. With practically every citizen armed with a powerful camera in their phones and members of the military coming forward to say they saw what they saw and it wasn't a drone, it's going to be hard to disc out hard evidence as anomalies, glitches, or weather balloons. Then again, with a cell phone in every pocket, maybe the government could control people with secret messages and code words to turn them into tools of the state. I don't believe in mind control to the degree that you can convince a child to sacrifice themselves for a hoax. Though, Lord knows, once I start doing research on that, I'll probably change my mind. Seems to be the pattern with this podcast. Next week on Strange and Unexplained, government mind control is real. Just kidding. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Have you ever had a secret... Have you ever known something important, something other people really want to know and just, like, kept it to yourself? 
Now imagine that secret was about yourself. And if anyone found out about it, it would completely change your life. Maybe for the worse. It might even get you killed. We're celebrating Pride Month with two stories of hidden identities that are completely unrelated, except for their queerness. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Haley Gray. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Also, if you're enjoying our show, check out all of the Obsessed Network shows, including Murder in Alliance, a real-time investigative podcast uncovering the truth behind the murder of 26-year-old Yvonne Lane in Alliance, Ohio. On this week's episode, host Maggie Freeling looks into the psychic who was hired when the police felt stuck on the case. This episode covers how it wasn't what the psychic said to the detectives that's of most interest, but rather what they told her that is truly shocking. Find Murder in Alliance wherever you get your podcasts.